0: church. I just want to pray and get us started this morning. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be in clusters, to be in house churches, to uh, care for each other, to be in each other's lives, especially in this time as we are talking about some heavy things. God, I just ask that you would um, give us the courage uh, just to wrestle, to ask questions, And God, even to be angry at the things we're feeling, it's okay. Uh, You have a plan for us. You want to heal us. You want to work in us. So God, I just pray that you would do just that uh, this morning and in these weeks and months ahead. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Say, real quick, I want to just share a word about the journey we're on. And um, it's brought up a lot for a lot of us, for a lot of you. Um, Following Jesus uh, with our whole selves is the focus. And the focus, the reason why we're focusing on that is because there's something that God wants to do in us when we bring our whole selves to surrender. And there's something that God wants to do in this world when a community of followers of Jesus, um, in humility and in honesty, begin to really wrestle with their whole person And what's interesting is um, there's a lot of work being done. The last 20 years, 30 years, there's been a ton of work in in the study of the human brain and brain science and neuroscience and neurobiology. And I think that the church, I think that followers of Jesus should really pay attention to it. Because there's a lot of writing now. There's even people out there who were writing under the in a sense, the title of a neurotheologian. Like, how does scripture, how does following Jesus, how does being spiritually attuned to the Holy Spirit, um, how does that work with our brains? And what's interesting is some of the theories out there, some of the people who are really working in in, in this field, are beginning to realize that many of us have been uh, partially discipled. Meaning, that we show up as Americans in the West, uh, post-enlightenment, we, at the age of reason, we think um, with our minds and we come up with arguments and we uh, rationalize things in one half of our brain, and yet the other half of our brain, uh, where our impulse is, where our relational uh, connections are with people, are on the other side of our brain. And so the, the problem is, is that many of us know a lot about the Bible, about Jesus, about um, the faith, about um, the Holy Spirit, and and all of these things. And yet at the same time, we still struggle with the impulse emotions and the impulse uh, reactions that we have in our lives. And so the real me, scripture says that the real me is the new spirit that God has put inside of me, that I am a new creation, that I am adopted into sonship, that I am new in Christ. And that is true. Absolutely true. And yet at the same time, my mind, okay, and my thinking um, is also stuck in some patterns of relating to human beings of fight or flight or anxiety or whatever, that I, I know that I'm one and I'm I'm with God and I'm I, and I'm a, a child of God and I'm adopted into sonship. I know this on one level. And on the other level, I have and you have ways of showing up, ways of being, ways of reacting that come from my sinful nature. And what's interesting is Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7, right? Um, he talks about the things I want to do and the things I do. You know, don't line up. And what I want to do is what the spirit wants me to do, and then what I end up doing is what my flesh wants me to do, and I'm in battle within myself. Well, that battle takes place in the mind, and I have this uh, cool little uh, brain. <laughs> um, and and what what I'm what I'm trying to get through to us and to myself is this idea that uh, many times in our lives. Um, We learn um, things on the left side of our brain, our strategies, their their conscious thought, you know, it's our speech, our problem-solving logic stories. That is all on the left side of our brains. And much of Christian discipleship has been on the left side of our brains, okay? Um, Understanding the gospel and understanding who Jesus is and reading scripture and the timelines and all those things, beautiful things, wonderful things. On the right side of our brains is where we have this feeling of individual identity and group identity, and it's how we're emotionally attuned to others or not emotionally attuned to others. Um, It's the assessment of our surroundings, like fight or flight, Um, and it's like our relational attachments. And what happens is, is many times um, the church— Okay, we put out programs and ways of discipleship that concentrate on the left side of the brain and that the right side of the brain is trying to figure out like, okay, how does this play out? And we're going to talk about this more in the weeks to come, but the spirit within us, God's spirit within us, um, how do we in our brains, just like where the spirit meets the, the who of who we are, How do we, uh, uh, you know, tap into what the Spirit wants for us? Not just in what we know, but in who we are and how we react and how we live. And so this is why we need this. Now, this is not a therapeutic series, meaning this isn't a series that's supposed to make you feel better about yourself. And for some of you are like, yeah, we get that because... Um, it it turns out it's making me feel worse. And the goal is not to make you feel worse. That's not the goal at all. It's not to beat you up about your life and your past and um, how you react. This series is really about grace. And grace isn't, like we said in the Philippians series, it's not a one-time thing. It's not a, a one moment in time, you got grace, now move on transformation inside of us is grace. That God's grace is this overwhelming, relentless wave after wave of healing and grace uh, and and transformation in our life, especially the most neglected parts of your life, the painful ones. And the reality is, is that our emotions are a symptom of what's happening deeper under the surface, okay? How we react when we are threatened, when someone um, pushes us away, when, when our kids do something to us, or our parents treat us a certain way. It's, it, those are the things. For instance, and this is where we're headed today. We know cognitively, and we know from reading scripture, that uh, being open and honest and confessing our brokenness to God and to other people, heals. We know this. We know this cognitively. We know this on the left side of our brain. We know this. The problem is, is we don't always practice that. Or we rarely practice it. Or we never practice it. And so I would argue that knowing something and not doing it actually means we don't actually know it. And this is where we're forced into a conversation about the right side of our brains, how we actually carry out this information in our lives, in our community, with our relationship with God. And so this morning we're looking at a character in Genesis chapter 37. It's actually somewhat of a sequel to last week because last week we talked about this long history, this long family lineage of Abraham all the way down through. And, and today we're going to look at a character named Judah. And Judah is one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Remember, Jacob lied to deceive his, his father into an inheritance. He ends up having 12 sons, four different wives, um, and Judah is the oldest, and so this is the story of Judah and his sons. Um, they collaborate, okay, to, to ship Joseph off uh, because they are annoyed with their youngest brother, Joseph, who has a dream about them. They think it's annoying. Um, and they thought about killing him. But Judah steps in and he says, uh, uh, says to his brothers in, in, in chapter uh, 37, verse 6, what will we gain? If we kill our brother and cover up his blood, come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So Judah steps in and says, hey, we don't, we don't need to murder him. Let's make some money off of him. Let's sell him. Okay? Okay? And so uh, after the whole story of Joseph being sold, um, the story, um, the author switches gears and begins to follow Judah in his life. Chapter 38, verse 1, it says, At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adulam named Hira. So in the midst of all this stuff, selling his brothers off, uh his brother off into basically human traffics his brother. I mean sibling rivalry right there, he in the midst of all this, he skips town, he runs, and he he goes to a whole different sorry, I just about dropped something, a whole different part um of of the the countryside. And this is uh a part that's not Israel. This is not the land that they uh, were uh, the the land of blessing really? And so it says in in verse two, there Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. And so, uh, if your ears pick pick perked up, it's. The Canaanite man, and so uh, the Can- Canaan was the promised land for Israel uh, going forward. And, and he's leaving his father, he's leaving his family and his land, and he's going to another land. He's leaving, in a sense, he's walking away from this generational blessing passed down from Abraham. Remember, last week we talked about generational sin and inheritance, and we both walk with we bo- we walk with both through our life. And he marries a Canaanite woman, which scripture tells us in the Old Testament, God did not want that to be the case because God believed that uh, love relationships end up, they can pull us away from the worship of God. They can, they can easily entice us into the worship of idols. And this is very true in the Old Testament. And, and so Judah goes along and he marries this woman. He has three sons, the first son is named Ur, the second son is named Onan, and the youngest son is named Shelah, which is a totally unfortunate name for a younger son. And so long story short, the first son dies, Ur dies, and he's married to a woman named Tamar. And then Onan um, it becomes the husband is supposed to become the husband of Tamar, based on how God had set it up. So, uh, to care for the win- the women and the and the widows, if the next son is unmarried, um, he would marry this woman. Now, Onan uh, doesn't like this arrangement, and he shirks his duties. I'll let you read into that. Uh, if you want to read the story. He shirks his duties, and so he ends up dying. Well, the only one left is this young son named Shelah, and he's not old enough to marry Tamar. And Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, this is verse 11, live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may too die just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. Now this is a massive breach in what God had ordained and planned. Um, Judah's supposed to care for Tamar. He's supposed to keep her in his household to care for her. And uh, what he does is he sends her, he shirks his duties, sends her off, very offensive and wrong in this culture, and um, he sends her away. Now, but things get worse, which usually is the case, okay? Verse 12, after a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira that might went with him. So th- this is culturally uh, the place where men would go to be men um, in, in not so many terms, uh, drinking, um, just, uh, Hey, I'm done mourning. I can, I can just let my hair down and be a dude. Okay. And, uh, so in verse 13, when, when Tamar was told your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes. Okay. And she's still mourning the loss of her first husband and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Sheila had grown up, so the younger son by this time has grown up, um, she had not been given to him as a wife. So she's desperate. She's like, this is my last chance. This is my last, this, this, This other son is my only hope, and he has been uh, kept from me. So when Judah saw her, he thought that she was a prostitute. And we'll find out that she thought she was actually a shrine prostitute, which means um, the the worship of other gods through engaging in sexual activity with a shrine prostitute. For she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now. Let me sleep with you. So Judah is a uh, kind of a perverted old guy who is now a widower going to throw down and, uh, some, some drinks with his buddies and get loose. And he runs into someone who he thinks is a shrine prostitute. And what will you give me to sleep with you? She asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So, so he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil, put back on her widow's clothes. So Judah gives her the things that she asks for in a pledge for the payment. And meanwhile, Judah sends the young goat by his friend, the Dulamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman. But he did not find her. He asked the man who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Enam? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So we went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. So this is just like, just I want to just focus in on a second. This is a clear breach of the worship of Yahweh. There couldn't be any bigger misstep in Judah's life of worshiping Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and his father, Jacob. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has, or we will become a laughingstock. Meaning, let her keep it. I want to keep this under wraps. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. So he's like, I did my duty. I sent her the young goat, so let's just keep this a secret. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. Now, in Levitical law, you were just supposed to stone somebody. But Judah takes it a whole step further. Now, here's the uh, interesting tally of Judah's life so far. I mean, the story goes, he's a liar. He's a human trafficker. He's a betrayer. He's a snake. He He has no regard for God. He is worship. He's an idolater. He's worshiping other gods. He's perverted. He's profane. And he's ready to burn a woman. Good guy or bad guy? Now, here's the thing. In addition to it, when Tamar is brought to him, it's, it's this idea of, I'm, I'm the judge over this woman. He's, he's, in a sense, declaring his own righteousness over her in the sight of everybody. So here's the thing. Just want to take a pause. What you and I have been taught in our apprenticeship to Jesus Is that we should confess our sins. We've been taught that. I mean, that is in our left brain. That is a truth that is something that we can even quote confess your sins one to another as to the Lord. Um, And we've also been taught that to be open and honest and vulnerable about our brokenness actually brings healing. We've been taught that. We've been taught that on Sundays. We've read that in scripture. But we've fashioned a way in our lives to keep from being um, rejected and to survive. We've fashioned a way to hide our brokenness, to keep secrets. It may not be big ones. They might just be small ones. But we found a way in our emotional attunement to other people and in our way of being in relationship to keep things under the lid. Now, what is brokenness? Some of you are like, that sounds like a really cheap way of saying sin. No, it's not. Brokenness comes from the sin that happens to us, that happens around us, and that happens through us. Okay? Okay. Brokenness comes from the sin that happens to us, around us, and through us. And these tend to be the exact things that we do not want to share with other people. And so what? let's be honest. Here's what we typically do with brokenness. We try to control it. We try to manage it. We push away the people in our lives that were involved in it. We get a new start. We curate our lives. Okay? So there's really three ways we try to control our brokenness. One is we flee. Uh, just like Judah. Judah uh, has a broken life. His dad favors his other kids. I mean, that probably hurt. Probably made him mad. Uh, it made him mad about Joseph. So instead of killing Joseph, he human-traffics Joseph. And then he runs. And, and so here's, this is brokenness. This is Judah's brokenness. Um, and he loses two sons. He loses his wife. He doesn't know what to do with the famine in his land. Um, he gets drunk. He, he visits prostitutes. He's a party guy. Um, and what's happening is, is we're similar to, to Judah in many ways. Uh, you may not do all of those things on the list, but let me just say this. Uh, we tend to, in our brokenness, uh, and in our shame, and in our uh, trying to keep things under control, we. We hide. We binge things. We binge alcohol and food and Netflix. We, we try to flee whatever it is that is broken in our lives. It's just what we do. We try to manage our brokenness. Well, Also, we fight. You, you, may, you may turn around and, and your brokenness has caused you to fight back and to fight something or some group or some injustice. And you have become, that has become who you are, some issue to take your anger out on. And, it, and you may say to yourself in, in the quietness of your own life, if people were just more like me, then the world would be a better place. Or here's the other thing we do. We hide. We hide. We don't reveal our true self because that's painful to do. We curate our lives. We're like an art museum director. We put up the things on the wall that we want people to see. And we put away the things that we don't want to display. And um, that's, that's many of us. So, back to the story of Judah, okay? Here's the weird part about the story of Judah when you fast forward. When you fast forward the story of Judah, things actually go really well for Judah. Like, really well. Fast forward, Judah and his brothers are with their dad, Jacob. And Jacob's at the end of his life, and this is actually chapter 49 in Genesis. And he does this thing where he pronounces a blessing on every single one of his sons. One after the other. And if you actually read it, I encourage you to do it. Um, Some sons get a small blessing. You know, like, hey, uh, here's some goats. But Judah gets an incredible blessing. The longest and best blessing. It's better than Joseph's blessing. Check this out. Verse Uh, 8 of chapter 49, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Like, do you remember anything in Judah's life that is praiseworthy? And we went through that list a little bit ago. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. It's like, whoa. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choice, branch. branched. He will wash his garments in wine. His robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine. His teeth whiter than milk. Judah gets that blessing. Is that fair? He gets gets that blessing. Now, Joseph's life, if you follow Joseph's life, they happen at the same time. All this stuff with Judah and his sons and Tamar and stuff. At the same time, Joseph is in slavery. He's like... He's trafficked into Egypt. He becomes, um, I mean, it, literally, you read the story of Joseph. There is innocence after innocence after innocence and character after character after character. And it's like he, he endures, he trusts, he perseveres. And Judah gets this blessing. Like, it's crazy. I mean, one of the blessings, the scepter will not, not depart from Judah, nor the rulers have from, have staff from between his feet until he whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nation shall be his. That is Messiah. That is messianic. Basically, Jacob's saying to Judah, through you is going to come Messiah. And sure enough, Matthew chapter 1, The genealogy of Jesus. Verse three, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Crazy. Yuck, right? Gross. This guy is in the line of Jesus. So what happens? Okay, so when we leave off the story, Tamar is about to get, she's about to get, Burnt. And with Judah's blessing, and she reveals the items that are Judah's. Check this out. Verse 25. This is where the story takes an incredible turn. As she was being brought out, she sent a message um, to her father-in-law. It says, she says, I am pregnant by the man who owns these. And she added, See if you recognize the, whose seal and cord and staff these are. She, she's like, just amazing. It's just like this giant, like, wo- oops. Tamar is there with proof, with evidence. The whole community is there. And Judah is exposed. The what had been in secret has now been revealed. And notice what Judah doesn't do. This is really important. He doesn't fight, he doesn't flee, and he doesn't hide. He gets really honest. And and scholars believe this is the turning point in the story of Judah. Verse 26, Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. So he's exposed, and not only does he own up to the fact that um, <laughs> he slept with her and, 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 you know, this whole shrine prostitute nonsense. But he also owns up to the fact that he didn't do right by her with his third son. He's saying, I'm in the wrong here. I'm the one that actually should get burned. I'm the one that has caused this calamity. And so Judah gets really honest and he is honest about who he is. Exposed about who he is and what he deserves. And Judah is honest about who God is. And here's what's amazing in the story. From here on, whenever uh, Jacob's uh, Jacob and his sons are mentioned, it's actually Judah and his brothers. Um, the son, It's not the sons of Jacob anymore. It's Judah. Judah becomes the focus of the narrative. Judah becomes a leader. He's been he he is over time become because of this moment changed, been transformed by grace. And he becomes the leader, he becomes the lion of Judah. He becomes the one who gets this blessing from his father because he gets brutally honest. He 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 opens the door he un he undoes the lid of his life he is he takes the blame what's fascinating is in the story there's famine in Egypt um the sons go to Joseph and it's a whole new story about that reconciliation with selling him into slavery but there's a point in the story where Benjamin another brother is 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 in trouble and Judah steps in and takes his place. He actually says, "Let the hurt be on me that I will move into the place of Benjamin and I will take the brunt of whatever punishment is deserved." And here's what's interesting, it's a total 180 to selling his brother Joseph into slavery. Instead of selling his brother off and and taking off, Judah actually steps in and becomes a substitute. Uh, He becomes honest and vulnerable and begins to act differently. And the action is what makes all the difference. Because he gets this kingly blessing. He gets this. He, becomes, he acts like a true king, which is interesting because Judah acts like Christ. Judah steps into the place of his brother to take whatever is coming his way. And so here's what we learn. We learn two things really quick as we wrap up. Brokenness kept inside of you will destroy you. It will, it will, it will fester like a cancer. And when you live out the script that has been playing over and over in your head, and when you keep sin and brokenness hidden, and that's brokenness is the things that have happened to you, around you, or through you. When you try to keep those hidden, they will destroy you. Think about Judah. He was hurt. Uh, He sold his brother. He left home. And he has this shame. And the shame holds people. it, It holds us in our brokenness. When we experience shame, we become survivalists. And that will keep a loop going in our lives. Even if your left brain knows the left side of your brain knows cognitively that Jesus loves me and forgives me and wants me to release all this brokenness in my life. Your right brain responds, no, don't do it. Keep this hidden. See, Judah believed this story that wasn't true about him. That he was um, unloved by his father. And so before all the anger and all of that, he was legitimately hurt. What holds us in brokenness and and our shame is typically untrue. And and it gives us this false idea of something that defines us that's just not true. So David, in the story of, of David's life, he talked about how Um, holding things inside of him, holding sin and brokenness inside of him, felt like his bones wasted away. Guys, that is not the intention of, of God in our lives. God wants us to have abundant life healing transformation, to live a flourishing life. And when you get honest, when you and I get honest, when you and I take the lid off of some of these dark places in our life, we begin to step full forward towards the full version of who God intended us to be. That that's when the sun shines on our lives, you actually get to be loved for who you are and not the mirage that you've created. Not the life that you've curated. Honesty is this is who I really am. This is what really has happened to me. This is what has happened around me, and this is what I have done in response to it. So what would it look like to be the kind of community that welcomes the Judas? what would it be kind of that kind of community to, to welcome? honesty and vulnerability and being open about brokenness? What would that look like? And that's why I think it's so great that we're talking about this because before we get to a chance to meet again as a large church, it's so healthy to be in smaller communities to talk, to share. Maybe there's someone at your house church. Man, I, I just need to get coffee with him. I, I, I just need to share some things in my life because it will destroy you if you don't. But here's the second thing. It's really important. Grace empowers us. It matters that you are honest, okay? So here's the deal. There's, all of us have sinned. All of us are bent and broken. Every single one of us. That's what scripture says. The wages of sin and death. Everyone sinned. And, but there's two different groups. Some of us try to control our brokenness, flee, hide, you know, things like that. But we also live in a culture that flaunts brokenness. This is who I am. Accept me. This is, this is my brokenness is, it's, it's not brokenness. It's, it's my choice. And responding to either way to brokenness actually means we don't understand the gospel. We don't fully get the gospel. We actually don't believe in grace. Um, the gospel is not legalism, and it's not relativism. And so responding either way kind of shows a little bit that we don't really get it. The gospel is humility. The gospel is this idea that that we are all broken and bent and at the same time, at the very same breath, God loves us. God would pay a cost for us, a monumental cost for us to step in, to substitute, to free us to experience so that we can experience freedom from sin and darkness and brokenness. That we are adopted into some ship. That we are they were kings and queens of the kingdom. Problem is our left brain knows that and our right doesn't know what to do with it. And there's this great author named Francis Spufford. He's, I've shared with him before, he's kind of a science fiction writer, but he's also somewhat of a really great theologian. And he wrote this, if you won't hear the bad news about yourself, you cannot know yourself. You condemn yourself to the maintenance of an exhausting illusion, a false front to yourself, which keeps out doubt and with it, hope. Change, nourishment, breath, life. Think about it. It begins with honesty. It begins with vulnerability. And we want that to be the culture of our church. This is why this is a vision series. See, I want to see us as a community being the kind of place that actually practices... The idea that I believe Jesus is after the Judas. Because Judas need Jesus and we need to practice that with each other. Do you actually need Jesus? Uh, And so let's get practical. How, How do we do this? We get honest with God. We literally get honest with God. We say the words out loud. We write the words down. Our anger, our lust, our fear, the starting place. Why am I like this? What has happened? Uh, interesting uh, little side story. The inaug- uh, inauguration this week. Uh, Garth Brooks uh, sang Amazing Grace, and it was it was Amazing. And the interesting story about the the song Amazing Grace, and some of you know the story, and obviously, and um, there's just a lot of pain and brokenness right now in the issue of of racism and um, the slave trade in America. And I thought it was a, a, a fitting song for the moment, because what's interesting is John Newton... Was a slave err. He was a slave trader. He owned ships and profited off the trafficking of humans. Like Judah. And John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. Now what's interesting is John Newton wrote Amazing Grace before he was done being a trafficker. And yet God was working in him slowly and surely, tasting grace, tasting transformation. And there's just a lot, obviously there's a lot of pain that has gone through generations because of what John Newton has done. But the the point is, is we got to get honest. We got to get honest with God and we got to get honest with others. The gospel is what, when you get honest about it, When you get honest about your brokenness, Jesus gives you a taste of healing. And he'll take it. If you just give him an inch, he'll take that and he'll heal and he'll give you a taste and a desire for more. And it will slowly begin to change your entire life. And he'll give you courage on top of courage, on top of courage. And then you and I can become the people that actually welcome the honesty and the brokenness of others. That we get to show grace, that we get to wrap our arms around people and and walk with people in their brokenness. And so questions to end, who do you need to talk to? Okay. Who do you need to get honest with? Okay? Have you ever really experienced grace? Is there an area of your life that you just need to experience and understand, not just cognitively, but experience the grace of God? Are there, are there, do you have friends, do you have people in your life that you that you know want the best for you? That you can reach out to? And are we the kind of community, are we the kind of small house church communities that can listen? Honestly, to the brokenness of each other. I want to pray. Father, this morning, um, you want us to heal more. You want us to experience transformation, the grace, the, the healing grace uh, of Jesus in our lives. And we know cognitive, cognitively that, that praying and confessing and being honest with others is what you've taught us in scripture. But God, help us to have the courage to move that into our reality. Show us ways that we can be vulnerable with each other and honest with each other and experience grace and freedom this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen.